HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Underground Meats, undergroundmeats.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And I am really delighted and uh, honored to have the estimable Barry Estabrook on the show with me today. I think this is his maiden voyage on What Doesn't Kill You. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with Barry Estabrook, he is a two-time James Beard award-winning journalist and the author of the New York Times bestselling Tomato Land, How Modern Industrial Agriculture Destroyed Our Most Alluring Fruit. His book, Pigtails, An Omnivore's Quest for Sustainable Meat, will be published in May 2015. He was a contributing editor at Gourmet Magazine, and his work has appeared in the New York Times Dining Section, the New York Times Magazine, New Men's Health, Sever, Gastronomica, TheAtlantic.com, and many other national magazines. He has been anthologized in eight annual collections of the best American food writing, and he lives in rural Vermont. His website is www.politicsoftheplate.com. Don't miss it. Visit it often and read everything on it. It's a terrific blog. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad you say that. I'd hate it for it not to be a pleasure. Um, so, uh, so one of your most interesting blog posts and what caused me to contact you was uh, about how you will be boycotting uh, Thai farmed shrimp in the future. Um, tell us what what's the story? Why should we all be boycotting Thai farmed shrimp? Quite simply because um, it's an industry that is totally dependent and based on slave labor. Um, in a nutshell. Yeah, pretty gross. So yeah, what do you mean by that, though? Let's, I mean... um, there are probably hundreds of thousands of, of slaves working on um, the boats that supply Thai shrimp farms with um, the fish meal that, that the, the shrimp are fed. Um, these people are um, regularly beaten. They're worked 18 or 20 hours a day. Um, if, if they don't work, they are often murdered yeah. or simply thrown overboard. Oof. 
Um, and they are basically supplying um, the vast industry of shrimp farming in Thailand with the fish meal, as you just said. So they're catching all the trash fish. Um, you know, give us an idea of what kind of numbers we're talking about in terms of the number of pounds of shrimp that we import from Thailand and what that represents uh, financially to Thailand and also to the American consumer. Well, Americans are essentially addicted to import cheap dip. Uh, imported shrimp. Yeah. Um, n- more than 90% of the shrimp we eat um, is imported. Wow. Um, and Thailand accounts for the largest, it's the largest single source um, of imported shrimp. It's about uh, a quarter of uh, the shrimp we eat, the one in four shrimp, uh-huh. um, comes from Thailand. Wow. That's, that's big um, numbers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, despite its it's it's unsavory foundation of slavery. It's a six billion dollar a year industry in Thailand. That's six with a B, right? Six with a B, and we we ourselves eat about uh, one one billion yeah. dollars worth of Thai shrimp a year. So that I mean, you would think that an industry like that would go a long way. Um, well, I mean, obviously somebody is getting rich, but clearly it is not the rank and file of the Thai population. Am I right in that? Well, it's most of the slaves are actually um, from neighboring countries that neighbor Thailand, Burma, um, Laos, um, um, Cambodia. Right. And they're poorer countries, so the you know these people are desperate for work. Right. And um, that's how they end up as as slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really a problem. What what happened? It, it began with overfishing. Uh-huh. Um, the the Thai fishing fleet. Um, simply, you know, almost fished out its water, the waters around Thailand and beyond, and um, they kept uh, having to lower wages, lower wages, and lower wages to to make it a financial success uh-huh. until <laughs> until the wages eventually hit zero. Wow, and that's where the slave labor comes in. Yeah, so they, just... they actually can order slaves. Um, <laughs> from suppliers, just like they might order um, a tank of diesel fuel or, or new net or something, there are suppliers. And for, oh, between $400 and, and maybe $1,000, you can get yourself a human being. Wow. Um, and, you know, you can never have to pay that person at all. Yeah, you just have to give them enough rice to keep them standing and... Well, barely, barely. They yeah. um, they get maybe a, a bowl of rice a day on these ships. Yeah, and the ships stay out um, for years at a time. They they're they're um, offshore, way offshore, often uh-huh. in international waters. Right. And um, smaller tender, you know, ships come and bring them fuel and take take the catch back. So the, the the boats with the slaves on them don't ever really come back to port for for years at a time. Right. So you have no, there is no escape from that except through death, essentially. That's right. There's, there's, you know, exactly. 
That's and the so, only and, way out. And, and, and because it's slave labor, it's completely expendable. So as you said earlier in the show, you know, if they, if they wear out, if they get sick or they don't want to work or whatever, they just get tossed overboard. And then the tender brings a new crop of slaves to fill in the old, you know, the gaps from the old ones. It's, it's, an, it's an astonishing loop there that you described in your blog. And um, I have to say that I did uh, go on to read virtually all of those Guardian, um, that six-part Guardian uh, piece that you referred to in your, in your piece um, that really exposed what is going on there and um, how widespread the problem is. But to go back to sort of the causes, um, you know, it's, it's the depleted fisheries, which I think was so interesting because when, when they are, when the ships are, are forced to go farther and farther out of, into, into international waters, then there's really no law enforcement either. There's no way to, to track these guys and say, well, hey, who's on that boat or anything like that, right? There's, no, there's basically no law enforcement whatsoever around this. And there's also endemic corruption. Am I right? I mean, can you describe a little bit of the collusion between um, the pirate ship, or rather the slave ships and the traffickers and the government or local, at least local and regional government offices who essentially uh, ter- either turn a blind eye or otherwise accept some sort of payout for this. I mean, talk a little bit about that, because that's, that's as much a part of the problem as anything else, no? Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the fact is that the Thai officials, and this goes from the, the lowly policemen on, on the beat, um, right up, to, right up you know, through local officials, right up to the highest level of Thai government, are not only turning a blind eye, but they're often profiting on, the, on this, this horrific trade. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 there's lip service. They pay lip service to doing something about it, but the problem persists. It, they haven't done anything to, to fix it. Um, at all, mm-hmm. um, to give them credit, a lot of the you know the slavery takes place um, in international waters where you know beyond the reach of Thai authorities. Right. But um, but there's you know where, where they can act, they don't. Right. Right. Um, well, one of the things uh, again, you referred me to the trafficking in persons report, uh, which was written for the State Department in Thailand. Um, because of their failure to um, make any progress on the slave tracking, has now been downgraded to what's called a Tier 3 country, which puts them on a par in terms of uh, slavery and workers' rights with Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, and other countries that we think of as really being egregious when it comes to human rights. Um, When it comes to um, sanctions or loss of aid or any other sort of punitive measures by the international community, does that does that being downgraded to a tier three automatically trigger some response like that from say the UN or the world you know the WHO I don't know whoever I mean who's in well, charge of this stuff? <laughs> well, you're 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 exactly right. Instead of cleaning up their act, they you know the, the act uh, continued to deteriorate, which caused them to be downgraded last uh, fall right. to this tier three, the lowest of the low. You can't get any worse. And that just means the country's basically doing nothing to stop slavery, to get in that category. Now, when, you're tier, when you are in Tier 3, um, the United States can impose um, sanctions, uh-huh. can impose uh, various export-import sanctions. But uh, President Obama waived that, uh, that right. So, oh, no kidding. 
Right. So, you know, business as usual. Is that part um, of the trade deal they're negotiating now, the Trans-Pacific Partnership? It's probably got something to do with that mm-hmm. because they don't, you know, they don't, they don't want boat. to upset any any of the, those um, Asian trading countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably got a bigger political, you know, no one knows. Um, but it's probably got a larger political um there's something in the background that's that's stopping right um, yeah i can't imagine the necessary actions yeah because i mean to be honest with you from the public relations point of view this is like a poster child you know like well yes i'm going to be the knight in shining armor who rides to the rescue of these poor um undocumented immigrants and interesting to me i mean in light of all of the reading and research and people i've interviewed over the last year um, you know, it, it comes down once again to sort of immigration reform, not necessarily in this country, but in uh, in, you know, Southeast Asian countries as well, because what you've you know, what you point to in your in your blog um, and also in all the Guardian pieces is that the the, the unfortunate victims are not Thai nationals, um, which may be another reason why the Thai government doesn't pursue this with more vigor, but actually foreign nationals from much poorer countries, as you said, uh, you know, like um, Laos, Cambodia, Burma, especially. Um, in fact, I watched a fascinating documentary about Burma last night, which just blew my mind. But anyway, that's an aside. So, um, so when we talk about, um, you know, any kind of sanctions, like what about uh, the response of American companies? Because I mean, for instance, Costco, um, Walmart, you know, some of our Sodexo, some of our largest institutional buyers, whether they're for grocery stores or hotel chains and restaurants or, you know, whatever, they are all complicit in this as well. So what, what has the industry response been to these reports? Can you give us a sense of that? Well, you know, the, the, they all pretty much say the same thing. They're aware of it, first of all. Mm-hmm. That's the important thing. They are all aware. This is no secret to them. Right. Um, but and they they sort of go we're shocked shocked appalled we're going to do something about this <laughs> and and um, and and really nothing has happened that's the problem it's it's um, you know it, it's it, shrimp were once a luxury item it's hard to believe I know they're they're now our you know largest we eat more shrimp than any other seafood yeah. they were once a luxury item and you know in this quest forever cheaper um food yeah um this is what happens this is uh, you know it's the bottom line and and uh, and thai shrimp is <laughs> inexpensive yes it is and people's and what's interesting to me also is that people still almost consider it still a luxury food i mean i i think on a certain level if, unless you buy it in the supermarket but when you go to a uh, you know a sort of chain restaurant like tgif or something like that i bet you're getting that thai shrimp and i bet you're paying shrimp cocktail prices with a capital s capital c you know what i mean like we paid you know 20 years ago i'm sure the prices are still fairly high um, as compared to what it actually costs to buy them, it'd be interesting to see what the difference is. Why do you, why don't we buy more local shrimp, Barry? What's how, what's the price differential here? Well, there there's there's two problems. Um, you know, one is the, is the supply. Uh huh. Well, we don't catch enough shrimp in in American waters mm. to satisfy this huge demand, mm-hmm. um, and it hasn't been helped. Um, you know, with the with the BP. Uh, oil spill in the right. Gulf, which is the source of most American shrimp, that that has uh, hurt. But we don't we don't um, 
we don't catch enough shrimp. And another of the reasons is that it's, it's very difficult financially for American shrimp fishermen because they're competing with, you know, in this case, slaves. Yeah. Um, so a lot of shrimp fishermen have simply no longer bothered to go fishing because yeah. it's not profitable. So it's sort of a, a uh, you know, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, yeah. And so... I mean, you can get American shrimp. Um, you can get, if you ask, in most supermarkets, uh, large supermarkets, um, they they do have them. They do carry them. Um, they can also be ordered uh, all, quite easily online directly from from processing companies in in the Gulf. Uh huh. So they're they're certainly available. Um, and yes, they cost more. Yeah, that's the problem. They cost more. So I was just wondering, like, so with Walmart, Costco, and the rest of these, even I, I think Whole Foods has stopped buying Thai shrimp, but uh, they're probably in the minority. But, um, you know, it just seems to me that the government could, our government could make it maybe more attractive to pay that little bit of extra to buy from another country, whether it's the United States or, I mean, Vietnam produces a lot of shrimp. Do they have the same labor issues as the Thai do? I mean, are they doing the same thing, I guess? Well, the Thailand is in a, is in a, a league of its own Class of its own. <laughs> you know, in terms of, in terms of this, this problem. I mean, yeah. there are other issues that crop up with Asian farm shrimp. These are all farmed shrimp we're yeah. talking about, right, right. Um, which includes uh, they're often given drugs. Yeah. Um, that are illegal in the United States, uh, things like that. But uh, sure, I mean, they feed, at the very least they feed them a lot of antibiotics because, of course, they can't. I mean, they have them in a fairly small um, pens. I mean, I was in Vietnam last year and I did see quite a bit of shrimp farming going on, and uh, you know, it's not a pretty it's very sight. Scary. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty gross. <laughs> these are not. These aren't sort of crystal clear lagoons. Oh they're, no. They're <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a great seafood lover <laughs> under the best of circumstances, but I, I just cut shrimp right off my, you know, like, that's out of the menu now. Forget about it, man, unless I'm down in Louisiana or something. But um, when we talk about the kind of corruption, you know, the collusion between the government and the traffickers and the police force and all of that kind of stuff that's going on in Thailand, um, you know, it's hard, it's sort of hard to imagine how you would even begin to unravel that kind of interdependence in order to, you know, at least put a damper on this kind of trade, if not eradicate it. I mean, what do you think would be the best? I mean, especially since we're willing to buy uh, shrimp that are from a country that traffics in slavery, you know, without apparently the slightest compunction. I mean, I'm hoping that more people will pick up on this story and that it will become a bit more of a scandal. And thank you for, you know, sounding the first alarm bells. But, But it is really hard to, you know, when you talk about how interconnected our food system is, you know, globally, and then, you know, what kind of leverage do we have to enforce uh, better quality practices uh, in other countries that we buy from? And, and that, I think, is a really interesting and pernicious question. And I wonder well, if the, you had any the, thoughts. The experts, you know, who are fighting international slavery um, agree that if there is going to be a change in Thailand, it's going to have to come through the large retail um, stores. Right. Um, yes, for sure. I mean, you know, if if they said tomorrow, clean up your act, or we won't buy your shrimp, you could, you would, the, the situation would change. Yeah. And the only way I think that 
you know the big retailers that are going to change is is uh, is through publicity, yeah. um, publicizing what's going on, and and through consumers. I mean, when we buy shrimp, you're either buying into this sort of slavery or not. And yeah. um, you know, it, when you go into a supermarket and you see a bag of frozen shrimp, it it should, by law, somewhere on that bag have a country of origin listed. Yes. Sometimes you have to peer closely at the small print, mm. but if you if you do, you can see where where those shrimp came from. So, you know, there are things that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. And and. There certainly, you know, it, I think the, the only cure is going to come when, when uh, Costco and Walmart and the big supermarkets say to Thailand. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Let's take a short break, and we'll be right back with Barry Estabrook. We're going to talk more about uh, slave trafficking and labor issues in general. Um, so stay tuned. Well, we didn't quite get to the sponsor drop, but that's okay because we heard some great music. Uh, this is What Doesn't Kill You. <laughs> Food Industry Insights on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're talking today with one of my heroes, and he should be one of yours, Barry Estabrook, uh, who is, uh, just published a really interesting blog about um, shrimp farming in Thailand and how that has led to a rise in slave trafficking. And um, and I, I kind of want to take it into a bigger, sort of a more macro um, discussion now because, um, you know, you wrote your fantastic book, Tomato Land, and that was largely about the Immokalee farm workers in, in Florida. And, and I wanted to um, sort of compare sort of the labor issues in the United States around people like the Immokalee farm workers, uh, other fruit pickers, uh, fruit and vegetable workers, or, and even people in the meat industry, and, and sort of compare that a little bit to, I mean, it's not slavery exactly, but kind of? What do you think about that? Well, I think that when I wrote uh, Tomato Land, there was slavery <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the Florida tomato fields. Abject That's true. Slavery. It was slavery. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It, you know, don't you can't uh, put put lipstick on that pig. It was slavery. <laughs> People were being bought and sold and beaten, and wow. you know, it was every bit as bad as uh, what you'd think from the 1850s. Wow. Um, now, fortunately, I quickly add. That was five years ago, and the five ensuing years have, have seen tremendous changes for the better in the Florida tomato industry. 
um, thanks to a group called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. So it's been um, seven years now with, without any cases of slavery coming to, to, to light in that industry mm-hmm. when it used to be an annual affair. So, And like we were talking about earlier, the, the, the force that drove these changes for the better was the big retailers, Mm-hmm. And the fast food joints, the people, the you know, the companies that had a huge share of the tomato market. It was only once they stepped up and and said essentially to the Florida tomato growers, "Sorry, we don't want slaves right. <laughs> implicated in our in our in our in our food businesses," um, that that things came together and Florida did clean up its act mm-hmm. amazingly. Amazingly, yeah. Although, you know, I mean, for anybody who has seen the the movie Food Chains, which came out earlier this year, um, uh, which is largely about the Immokalee farm workers, um, you know, it's it's better, but it's still by far, for, uh, you know, far from ideal. And I think that, um, you know, while they are a fantastic lesson in how organized organized union, you know, organized labor will help, um, the plight of farm workers around the country is is by no means a rosy one. And and to me, um, one of the things that I want to sort of drill down on with you, Barry, was when you were reporting on the Immokalee farmer, uh, farm workers, uh, how did the USDA and or the Department of Labor respond to those allegations of slavery and the documentation of slavery? Like, was there, I mean, why, I guess my point is, why was it consumer driven rather than uh, executive or legislatively driven to, you know, uh, ensure worker rights for this particular group? Well, I mean, the, the one the, the assistant head of the Florida Department of Agriculture quite famously said after you know a, a, a particularly heinous slavery um, ring was was busted and prosecuted, mm-hmm. and when asked about it, he said, "Well, gee, what do you hear? One or two a year cases of this a year." Okay. Um, so that kind of sums up the official attitude toward this. Um, in general, you know, slave these people, farm workers in general, are marginalized. Yeah, they aren't. You know, most of them are foreign. Many of them are don't have proper documentation to work, and you know, few of them vote, and, and none of them probably give campaign um, contributions to politicians. So there are there are, the politicians. Um, they didn't. They didn't. They had no role really in 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 the improvement in the um, the tomato industry. We couldn't. They couldn't even get Florida politicians to agree to put up little require farmers to put up tents. Those little pop up tents in the field right. wouldn't even do something as minimal as that. Um, the State Department, the U.S. State Department, did. Um, along with several other groups, recognize um, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers for its anti-slavery efforts. Mm -hmm. But as far, I mean, recognition is nice, but as far as actually doing anything, it it took the workers getting um, in partnership with the large 
uh, food retailers to to bring about substantial change. That's astonishing. And then, you know, I'm sure I know you read uh, Ted Genoway's book, The Chain, earlier this year, also published last year, um, about Hormel. And, and that book was very much about immigration issues, uh, very, and because the, the same issues prevail where you have uh, a marginalized large group of undocumented workers who are willing to accept extraordinarily low wages or even no wages in return for whatever. Um, and uh, and again, I mean, it's it was the same. It was a very interesting uh, parallel to me. I mean, I, I you know, the more I read about this, the more I realize that uh, that this really is the food fight to to take to the to the government. Now, it's not just antibiotics in the system or, you know, water issues or, you know, all of the other things that we've you know, all of us who are in this have an interest in these in these problems um to me so many problems would be sorted out by uh, addressing the immigration issues um and the fact that these workers have no rights whatsoever and um and i just i was amazed at how much um or rather as especially when you just said that you couldn't even get a florida politician interested in putting up a pop-up tent i mean really you know <clears throat> but uh, to go back to what we were saying earlier about um Sort of being driven by consumer demand, um, I sure you, I'm sure you noted with interest that Tyson, Purdue uh, have agreed to restrict or even eliminate antibiotic use in their hatcheries and in their chickens, and that is a completely consumer-driven um, effort. Uh, the FDA, as we all know, has done literally nothing to curb that use. So um, do you see uh, farm workers, meat workers, uh, the shrimp? slaves are they all you know is it all about people like us or you especially getting that message out that we have an obligation to look further than the plate at what we're getting or how we get it i guess well the the, the problem both of slavery and of of you know poor working conditions in general in the agriculture uh, agricultural sector comes down to our our desire for cheap food. Yes. It, it, you get these large companies which has tremendous influence in the marketplace. And they're, you know, whether they're a large supermarket company or a large fast food chain or, or a Walmart type of company or Costco. And they're always demanding cheaper, cheaper, cheaper food That's from right. their suppliers. Every And you think about the things a farmer can control. Well, he's not going to be able to go to to uh, to Exxon and say I, you're charging me too much for fuel. And he's not going to be able to go right. to Monsanto and say you know you're charging me too much for for agricultural chemicals. Um, but he can go to his workers and say I'm not going to pay you as much as I used to. Yeah, that's the only place where there's any give. Um, in the in the chain, or the only thing that a farmer can really control is the price that are paid to the worker. Right. And what that has done is, um, you know, resulted in this downward, downward spiral um, uh, for agricultural workers. You talked about um, um, Ted Genoway's The Chain and Hormel. There was a time in the mid '80s when, when. Um, Slaughterhouse workers. It was a good. It was as good a job as any unionized job. You know, yeah. it was a good. You know, manufacturing. They made. They made more than the average manufacturing employee. Mm-hmm. Well, their wages have fallen steadily since the 80s. 
Mm-hmm. And as the wages fall um, and people leave the industry, um, migrant or people from other countries, particularly Hispanic people, are filling those uh, those slots. Yeah. Um, because perhaps they're willing to take a, a lower salary or willing to work in conditions that uh, that a uh, you know a, a someone who has American citizenship would would not want to do. Yeah. Well, one of the things I noticed with interest on a trip I took to Australia last spr- uh, summer. <clears throat> Is that one of the JBS plants that we visited, we went to something called Beef City. And all of the workers there were Australian. I thought that was fascinating. And it was it had a slower chain speed. It was a much more relaxed atmosphere. I've been to quite a few slaughterhouses at this point. And um, it just was a much better feeling place. And then by contrast, we went to another company slaughterhouse that was handling sheep, granted. Chain speed was double. Uh, the worker, uh, the workforce was immigrants, and it had a totally American, to me, American feel to the slaughterhouse. It was such a marked contrast, and I think what you're describing is where Australia is heading, you know, where in the past it was, you know, a, it was a good-paying job and provided benefits and, a, you know, an opportunity to excel and to go forward. And no longer the case because of our ability to get all of these immigrants who just want to come here to make some money and we'll pretty much do anything we want. Um, so I guess that's that, but how do we make, uh, how do we, is it consumer driven that we're going to force companies uh, to, I mean, are we all going to say collectively, yes, we're going to pay an extra five cents a pound for this. I mean, I just don't, I don't see how we break the spiral, I guess, Barry. And I'm looking to you as my guru to help me understand. (laughs) (laughs) How we are going to convey to the American public that they actually need to commit a little more money to their food budgets. Well, you know, I guess the nice thing about food is a problem we can solve. Yeah. It's not like climate change or nuclear weapons proliferation. True. Um, We can solve it right now for ourselves. Yeah. We can go and refuse to buy Thai shrimp. Okay. Or maybe better yet, insist on buying American wild shrimp. Yeah, make we it a can, treat. We can forego the cheap um, pale pink pork that you see in the supermarket and, and can patronize, uh, you know, now every farmer's market you go to has somebody selling a properly raised um, meat. Yes. Um, it's not so. Every we vote with our food dollars. So you could say tomorrow, I don't want to eat a pork chop that comes from one of these slaughterhouses, and you can walk down to uh, certainly any green market in the New York City area and and get good pork. Yeah. Um, and and uh, the same applies to our vegetables to to everything. It's it's something we can do individually. Um, and that, to me, is what it's probably going to take um, uh, to, you know, the, you mentioned um, the uh, McDonald's uh, phasing out um, chicken that's been fed uh, human antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Well, that was not because someone at McDonald's woke up one morning and decided to be nice. <laughs> That's it right. It was because of 
millions of tiny consumers like us mm-hmm. um, changing our our minds. Yes. First of all, becoming educated, and second of all, um, you know, showing a will a willingness to uh, to for you know to buy antibiotic free meats over meats that have been. Uh, derived from animals that lived on antibiotics most of their lives. Right. Well, that that brings us to um, your next book. We're going to give a little preview because it's coming out in just two months, right? Pigtails. It's coming out the 4th of May. Woohoo! So you're going to come <laughs> back for that, right, Barry? We're yeah. going to be talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know I lo- I'm the queen of meat here. I love the meat industry. So tell us what is Pigtails and why we all need to you know, purchase a copy instantly. Advance orders on Amazon, please. <laughs> right. Uh, Pigtails is it's sort of my attempt to fully understand. I, 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 I was thinking, you know, if you're going to eat meat, yeah. you kind of owe it <laughs> to the creatures to be as, as well-educated as you can, you know, about what you're eating. Mm-hmm. Um, not just to ignorantly... You know, it is it is a product of a of, you know a living being. That's right. And and I've selected pigs because um, I like pigs. <laughs> I used to raise pigs. <laughs> oh. So um, Paul was kind of they've interested me as an animal. Yes. And um, and just just tried to answer. You know, my, when I told my partner I was going to do a book about pork production and pigs, she looked at me very sternly and said, I hope this doesn't mean we have to give up bacon. (laughs) No, not at all. We just have to pay a lot more for it. I've gone overboard. (laughs) And, and, you know, my my answer at the end of the book is basically, um, we don't have to give it up. We're going to be a lot more selective about the type of bacon we buy. Mm Mm-hmm. So what what was your conclusion about the pork industry? Uh, you know, in, in a nutshell, you know, got three minutes here. No, I mean, but like, what what was what were the things that stood out for you most about pork, uh, the pork industry in the United States today versus I don't know, fifty years ago? Well, I think today, pork is either the very worst meat you can eat mm-hmm. from any point of view, humanity, um, humane treatment, environmental. You name it, from any point of view, it's the, it can be the worst meat, or it can be the very best meat. Yeah. And it all depends on how it's raised. Um, more, you know, there's such a, you know, a difference between a pigs that are raised on pasture and these pigs that are raised in these horrible confinement buildings, um, right. Which, right. which are 95% of the pigs in the United States. Um, you know. You know, the, the pig is allowed to exercise none of its natural instincts um, in one of these confinement buildings. Never right. sees the light of day, never breathes fresh air. Um, pigs that are raised on pastures, they enjoy their lives. I mean, pigs are, they love to root, they love each other, they love yeah. to they're, race around. They're cheerful. Um, they're very cheerful animals, in my experience. Right, right. And so. You know, that's what I came away with, is there's just such a difference. Yeah. And, um, and again, the choice is ours. Um, right. Whether we would partake in this system uh, of factory farming, such a, 
you know, an incredible. Pigs are incredible animals. They're so smart. Yeah. A pig is as smart as a three-year-old child. That's that's a Cambridge um, animal cognition professor wow. did tests. And to take an animal as smart and curious as that and warehouse it in, you know, places where they don't even, like, you know, some of the sows, most of the sows can't even turn around in their stalls. Yeah, right. Um, is, is, to me, pretty pretty horrific. So, but the good news, again, is there is good pig to be had. There's good pork to be had. <laughs> there I is, mean, indeed. With, it's, it's not only well-raised, but it really tastes uh, uh, good. It's, it's, you know, it's as different from supermarket stuff as uh, a summer tomato from the garden is from one from the uh, vegetable section of a supermarket this time of year. Absolutely. And it all, they can all be purchased, by the way, at heritagefoodsusa.com. Go there now to buy your Duroc, Gloucester Old Spot, <laughs> Red Waddle, and Tamworth. Um, just to give a plug to the you know parent company here. <laughs> um, well, it used to be very hard. I mean, yes. even a few years ago, it required effort. Mm-hmm. You, know, you pretty well either had to raise a pig yourself or know somebody who did. That's true. To get well-raised pork. This wasn't too... And now it doesn't. I mean, now it's, like I said, it's 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 pretty readily available. You don't have an excuse anymore that, oh, I can't find good pork. Yes, that's true. Um, Barry, we have to wrap it up here, but uh, you have a blog site. Let's just remind people of what it is, Politics of the Plate. Com. And that, I mean, really, that is a wonder. I love your blog. I look at it every week, um, just as I look at Marion Nessel every week and, you know, a host of other people. That's why I never get anything done. I'm so busy reading the trades <laughs> and then reading what you guys write. <laughs> but I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Um, let's definitely make a date uh, for you to come back for Pigtails because I can't wait to read that. And uh, thanks to my sponsor who didn't get dropped, but I know they're out there anyway. And... <laughs> We'll be back next week with another great show. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, have a good week, folks. So long now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>